So we had six weeks, $30,000 to build something completely new. And that was when I knew, okay, I need to fly from San Francisco back to Shenzhen where things are cheap, they're fast, and I know where everything is. I can get 3D printing same day or next day versus in San Francisco, it takes you know, a couple of days. Um, I can buy components just at the electronics market, whereas in the US, I have to order something on DigiKey and it takes about a week to arrive. Um, so we flew back to China, um, went back to our hardware accelerator, and we sort of spent six weeks there building a new product. And then we launched it on Kickstarter um, with no idea what would happen. But first day, we, we smashed through our goal of $50,000. And then every day, we had a constant um, sales, which ultimately ended up in $2 million sales uh, within 45 days. Welcome. This is Phil Michaels, Forbes 30 Under 30 Entrepreneur and Performance Coach. Forbes names the top 30 entrepreneurs, leaders, and stars in the world. And each week, we bring you one of them to help you level up in your life and business. From celebrities like LeBron James to Kylie Jenner and Cardi B, you're sure to learn from the list. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now it's time to level up. Level up. Welcome to Phil with Forbes 30 Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. He made the Forbes Asia list in 2017 for the industry and energy category. He's the founder of VIEW, a pair of stylish smart glasses built for everyday use, tracking your activities like your steps, posture, calories, taking music and calls, and even has a tracker in case you lose your glasses. He's raised over $2.2 million on Kickstarter and sold $4 million in its first year of launch, becoming the top eyewear Kickstarter campaign of all time. He holds degrees in mechanical engineering, marketing, and operations management from the University of Pennsylvania. He has been building hardware and software devices ever since he built a dumpling maker out of Legos as a kid. He's lived in China, New Zealand, Australia, and now resides in San Francisco. And lastly, he was named as one of the MIT innovators under 35 for their Asia list. Please welcome my very special guest, Jason Gui. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Phil, for that introduction. <laughs> Very excited to have you here. I'm honored, and it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to the show. Jason and I were lucky enough to meet at one of the Forbes events, as you've been hearing from previous episodes in Israel is where it all started, and now we get to reconnect. So I'm so excited to share his story with you and what he's been working on. But Jason, before we dive into things, Share with the audience where you were when you first found out you made the Forbes list. I think I was in Shenzhen at the time. Um, that's where our other office is, where we do like sort of manufacturing. Um, and then uh, actually before, they, before I even knew I was on the list, um, I think they reached out to me about like my, my picture or something. They were saying like, oh, we need, a, we need you to send a new picture in um, because the first one that I sent in didn't work. And so I was like, ooh, if, they, if they're asking me for a picture, I'm probably in. <laughs> so, so that was sort of like, you know, I, I got to know beforehand. Um, but yeah, when I, when I got to know about it, I wasn't informed by anyone at Forbes. It just kind of, um, someone else saw it published and then they, they informed me. And so I was like, wow, like, you know, it's, it's true. I'm super excited. Such a validating moment when you make the list, such a proud moment. Who was the first person you shared it with when you found out? Uh, probably my parents, um, especially what I really liked was like, 
you know, when you make the list, um, you actually show up uh, with your own personal profile on the Forbes site. And so that was like super exciting. Um, and that profile actually proved useful um, during the trip where we, meet la where we met last time in Israel. Um, because when I was flying into Israel, uh, they were checking my passport and, and I had like stamps from all over the world because I love to travel in my spare time. Um, I think that year I went to like 30 other countries. So the Israeli authorities were like, wow, like, why were you in Malaysia? Like, uh, why were you in Brunei? Like, are you still in touch with anyone? I just seemed super suspicious. And then I tried to prove to them like, hey guys, I'm, you know, legit. I'm a startup entrepreneur. Kiss me on Forbes. And I showed them that. <laughs> I think a lot of people had that same situation because that was, we were there right when Trump was announcing that Jerusalem was going to become the U.S. embassy for uh, the Israeli embassy. And, and they, uh, then we had the bombings in the Golan Heights. And if you remember, there was like extra security going on. So we all got that extra screening and pulled to the side and we're all trying to convince the Israeli <laughs> government and security, airport security that were legitimate. <laughs> so those, those Forbes profiles definitely helped in, in more ways than one. I'm sure it, it's been used for other forms of credibility too, trying to get into <laughs> events or maybe even picking up a date <laughs> well, I haven't tried that yet, but I'm sure it's, uh, it's, it should be pretty successful. There you go. You're even getting dating tips on this episode. This is perfect. <laughs> uh, Jason, take us back to the very beginning, where you're from, where you grew up, and the path that ultimately led you to where you are now, making it to the Forbes list. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Shenzhen, um, which, you know, a couple of years ago, and probably no one knew about it. Um, but now... Uh, it's sort of risen in fame as the place where they make iPhones, the place where Huawei comes from, the place where they do all the electronics manufacturing. So, you know, things like the webcam we're using right now, the computers, your headphone that you're wearing, all those came out of Shenzhen, China. Um, and it's a pretty amazing city in itself because it's only got like 30, 40 years of history. It's sprang from absolutely nothing into a big metropolis. Um, so I was born over there. I grew up in New Zealand. Um, and that was where I was exposed to sort of, you know, playing Lego and really creating things um, because you get all this free time versus if I had been in China, I wouldn't have had all this free time to do my own stuff. And that's when I decided I really want to, you know, either be a scientist or an engineer or something. I want to make cool things. So uh, I went to, um, I then went to study in the U.S. Um, and I did, I chose mechanical engineering and business because I wanted to do a startup. Uh, but during the whole four years of college, I didn't have a startup idea that was credible enough for me to come out of college, to drop out of school and, and really pursue. Um, even though I was trying the whole time to just find something to drop out of college for. Um, but that kind of idea never came. But when it did come, uh, it came, it was during my senior design. Um, so for mechanical engineering, senior design, we get to pick whatever we want to do, as long as we're solving the world's problems. And what me and my team came up with was falling asleep in class is a huge problem that we wanted to solve. And so we wanted to build something that could help students stay awake in class. And what we ultimately came up with from that senior design project was a pair of glasses that could track your eyes to see if you were falling asleep. And then it would zzz to buzz you when you fall asleep. Wow, <laughs> to keep that's you. genius. 
<laughs> I could especially be, see that being helpful for truck drivers, which is one of the largest professions here in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, initially, you know, we were students, we were young, we had no idea about the world outside. So we're like, yeah, this is going to sell to students and, you know, every student is going to buy this. And, and professors were like, I should give that to all my classes. Um, but, you know, we, we, so, so we did that. Um, we decided to uh, do a Kickstarter uh, for that product. It didn't go too well. We sold about like a thousand peers. Because um, we were trying to market it to students, which, you know, students don't really care if they fall asleep in class, uh, to be honest. Um, but what we did find was exactly as you said, there were a lot of truck drivers, a lot of um, companies who reached out to us um, about uh, our product and said like, wow, you should really, you know, you should really sell this um, to truck drivers and help them stay awake. So that was how we sort of went into the trucking business um, coming from zero background in trucking. And we did that for a few years, um, working on Vigo, building it as a product uh, for truck drivers, eventually turning it into a headset so that they can communicate as well as uh, track their drowsiness levels. Um, and then a couple years later, we, uh, we then launched our new product called View, which is smart glasses for everyday use, as you just described. I'm actually currently wearing them right now. So they look just like normal glasses, and oh, wow. these lenses have my prescription in them. So basically, they look no different from normal glasses. Yeah, you can't even tell. Right, and you know, no one can really tell. But there's a lot of technology packed into them. Um, we have a lot of sensors, uh, accelerometers, touch control. We have phone conduction technology in here. So basically, the, the stems of the legs vibrate, and you can hear audio while no one else can. So that's uh, all built into these glasses, which are super discreet. Um, and actually one side note was when I was in Israel and, and they stopped me um, and I showed them the Forbes profile and all that, they asked for my business card, so I gave them one. And then a month later, one of the um, security people emailed me and said like, this is really you know, suitable for security, let's chat. So. You know, the, the fact that they're super discreet and uh, people can't tell that they're, they're, you know, with technology inside is a big reason why a lot of people want them. So we launched that product in 2016. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, we had no idea as, if it would succeed. Um, but in 45 days, we were able to raise four, uh, $2 million in the 45 days. And it became an instant hit. So we're like, wow, there's actually a real market for this. So we no longer sell towards truck drivers, but towards people, you know, everyday glasses wearers who basically need prescription glasses and who also listen to music, use headphones, and it's all built in one. So that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years. I mean, that's amazing because now you realized it's not just for truck drivers, not just for students. You realize what your market was there, but now you're, you developed a product for everyday use people that I'm sure could, you said it, people that play music, people that take calls, people that want to track their activity. That's basically everyone. <laughs> I mean, how did you, like when we think about your success and how you got to where you are now, what do you attribute that to? What was the, maybe the most important personal attribute you've had that's gotten you to where you are today? I think it's just, you know, it's just passion. 
uh, just very simply, it's just passion. Like I've been building things since I was a kid, um, playing with Lego, doing all kinds of things, just, you know, m making things basically. And so for me, it's like, I just want to solve problems. And so, um, you know, back in college, uh, when we were picking senior design product projects, most people had no idea what kind of problem they wanted to solve. And they just sort of picked off a list that the professors provided. So, you know, they were doing sort of nanotube, viscous flow, I don't know, like all that kind of really fancy, fancy stuff. Um, but it didn't really lead to a real, real life thing. But to me, I was thinking, okay, I have a full year to do senior design. I'm working with like three other teammates. I have all these professors who are helping me work on something. Why don't I create something that could be commercialized? So I think, you know, really the ability to integrate all these resources together and then create something out of it. I think that's something that I really found I'm good at. You're like Elon Musk at UPenn <laughs> studying engineering, but then also the business side of things. So well, he could be my role model because we kind of study the same similar things. Yeah. And then space aspirations too. Um, I think it's too early for me right now to do anything space related, just as he wouldn't have done something like that when he was in his 20s. But, you know, one day I, I hope to be doing uh, very similar things. Yeah, you have very similar paths. And um, as you could see, his biography is right here by yeah. Ashley. Yeah. <laughs> have you read it? Uh, not this one yet. I've read a lot of other articles and stuff about him, but not this, this one. This is yet. the first one where he actually sits down for a, an interview to be for a book to be written about him. It's the only one he's ever approved. Um, so it, it's, it's a very fascinating one. He talks about the nitty gritty and um, he talks about how he forced his engineering team to live off the coast of Hawaii on an island so that they had no distractions from family or friends to force them to, to work harder. And, and, you know, and then he was living in California at the time and they're just, you know, slaving away for like three months at a time. Yeah, intense guy. <laughs> intense guy. And then his story about NASA, I mean, all the role models that he looked up to at NASA and telling him that he can't create a relaunchable rocket. And not only did he do it, but he did it way under budget and way less than what they were paying for. And he was just like, hit their, their technology was so antiquated that he just kept putting it down and saying, we need to revamp this. This is from the 60s. And it's pretty fascinating. And I could see how your paths are similar because he went to UPenn and he has the engineering and the business side. And it sounds like you're able to take advantage of both now working on hardware and software while also making it a commercial product that you could sell. So thinking of your product, what is the most common reason that you use it? And what, what do you find is the most common reason other people use it? And like, who's your most common customer? Yeah. Um, well, I think first and foremost, we're a pair of glasses. And so when you ask like who's using it, it's actually very simple. It's people who wear glasses and you know, maybe you're not wearing glasses right now, but you probably have a pair of sunglasses. Um, for a lot of people who are myopic or who rely on glasses to see every day, glasses are like the most important thing. Like you could walk out of, you know, you could start your day and walk out of your room um, and go to work and forget to bring your phone. You might forget to bring your keys. You might forget to bring your wallet. But for someone who wears glasses, you definitely won't be able to forget your glasses because that's just essential for a lot of people. And 
you know, just like what you said about Elon Musk trying to sort of innovate in the space sector, glasses actually haven't changed at all in the past 800 years. They were first invented in Italy like 800 years ago, and they've always been doing just one thing, which is vision correction, which is great, and it's, you know, it's helping a lot of people, but it hasn't changed much. So that's why to us it's like, you know, we want to build something that's first and foremost glasses, but then do other things cool with it. So there were other attempts like Google Glass, which everyone knows about and everyone, you know, tends to compare uh, when, when you talk about smart glasses, they would mention Google Glass. Um, and Google Glass was a, a really amazing feat of engineering, but where they failed was being glasses first. They were basically, I would probably assume that it would, was people who didn't wear glasses who were trying to build a computer into, their, into these glasses. But That's a great point. It was heavy, it was uncomfortable. Um, and when you're building glasses, you first need to think, how do I build something that people are gonna wear for like 15 hours a day, and then gradually add little bits of technology inside. And so that's why we don't have a camera, we don't have a screen, we don't have a huge battery, uh, because we need it to be lightweight. And I think that's a big reason why people um, are willing to wear this, because it's comfortable. Uh, that's, you know, first it's, it's glasses, and then after that is when you think about like, you know, who are the people who are actually listening to music with it? Um, probably people working in an office who want to concentrate and hear music, but they don't, they don't want to plug in their ears and, you know, seem sort of really secluded or, or not being able to respond if, if someone's trying to talk to you. Um, and so that's why we have this open ear design where you can listen to music while still uh, being able to hear what's going on around you. So the same thing applies to pedestrians, cyclists, basically being able to hear what's going on around you when you're listening to music or taking a call. Um, to us, that was super important. And so we designed it in a way where, yes, you do sacrifice a bit of audio quality because the audio is not sticking into your ear as a headphone would, but you're also getting this convenience um, by being able to hear what's going on around you. It's genius. And you just illuminated the biggest failure Google Glass had because I remember trying Google Glass and I'm like, these are cool, but it's more like a novelty item. I'm not actually going to wear these things. I look like an idiot. And, <laughs> but you thought so simple. You're like, wait a second, people already wear glasses. So we just need to replicate that and add an extra piece of value to it. Just like the iPhone, right? They didn't say when we had iPhone, you used to have to carry around your digital camera and your iPod, your music playing device, all three, anytime you went anywhere. And they were like, all right, well, what are you already taking around with you? Let's add the music player to that. Let's add the camera to that instead of trying to, it's kind of like in business, you want to use an existing distribution channel, but you're using an existing distribution channel to your user, which is they're already wearing glasses. So let's just add a piece of value like the music player, like tracking your habits and exactly. Yeah, I think when you're building a startup, it's really hard to um, teach someone a new thing, a new habit. But building on top of something they already have um, is, you know, fairly simple. So if they're wearing glasses, try to build a better pair of glasses that has more stuff in it. Um, or if you have, I don't know, if people are eating, so maybe food delivery is something that works. So people are trying to travel. So maybe something like Uber that fulfills people's travel needs 
um, can work. I think like starting with an actual need that people already have and then making that better is, is a better way for us, you know, new entrepreneurs to start off with. Yeah, behavior change is not an area you want to go into. You want to mitigate the amount of behavior change you're forcing your end user to, to take. Uh, I forget the exact number. Don't quote me on the number. But for every additional click you force your end user to take or for every additional action they need to take, 30, around 30% of those users won't take that additional step. So you're losing a huge amount of your end users for every step you force them to take or every additional action or click. So whether it's an app or a website, you're losing a lot of people. But So you just need to make it simple, convenient, something they're already doing every day. It's a good exactly. advice. Yeah, and we actually utilize that a lot um, during um, our online e-commerce and stuff because uh, right now our main, our main distribution is um, online. Um, so people can go to our website to buy this. Um, we were going to do sort of physical stores this year, but I'm glad we didn't because of COVID and all that. Um, but uh, basically, you know, when, when it's online, it's all about how do you eliminate the barrier and, and have people purchase something with as few clicks as possible. So for example, we have the option where instead of entering your prescription when you place the order, which a lot of people don't have their prescriptions by then, uh, we actually allow them to place the order and then follow up with the prescription. And so that allows them to, you know, take advantage of deals or, or purchase something and then provide those details later. That's interesting. They, I have Warby Parker glasses. They're pretty popular now. It's like $100, $150. And now they include the, the blue, blue light blocking. Um, they are. So you can't even tell that they're blue light blocking. Yeah. But they're stylish. What I like about them, and maybe this is an interesting, interesting idea. Maybe you've already thought about it. Is they put physical standalone locations in already existing infrastructure. So for example, there's this place called Oxford Exchange around here in Tampa, Florida. It's like a restaurant and, and whatnot. And they put the Warby Parker location inside the restaurant. I'm wondering if there's like, have you thought about a licensing deal to get more um, of your glasses in people on people's uh, faces? Yeah, actually, so Warby Parker, the CEOs uh, graduated from Penn as well. Um, so we actually know them, they've been to our office in San Francisco, um, and there's definitely a lot that we can learn from them or potentially create, uh, collaborate with them in, in the future. Because I think, you know, what we have is really forward thinking in terms of like all the kind of things they did about buyer peer, the made another peer, um, and the kind of styles and designs they have appeal to a younger audience. Um, they're not looking for the $9.99 glasses or the $1,000 you know, Prada glasses that you get in other stores, um, but rather affordable, stylish glasses. And I think we all share that kind of um, philosophy. Yeah, because I could see similar to the existing distribution channels, like people are already buying Warby Parkers. How can we add value or get into the door with uh, an existing distribution channel? I could see that being really valuable. And um, while also obviously you're already extremely successful from the direct to consumer e-commerce play. And what well, now we talked about the success. What about the flip side? What's been maybe your biggest lesson that you've learned along your journey that maybe you wish you had learned from sooner? It, it's good to really focus and, and really, you know, 
not give up and, and, and go in one direction. But it's important to sometimes ultimately realize that you're probably wrong and then be flexible enough to, to you know, pivot or to do something different. Um, so uh, the, the, the story behind how we started this um, was when we did Vigo. So I mentioned Vigo earlier. We were doing like these trucking companies. Um, we did an okay Kickstarter. Um, but what really got us into the trucking business was when we started reaching out and starting to hear back from companies like UPS and FedEx um, and all kinds of these um, huge uh, logistics and transportation companies. And they had a lot of interest. They were like, wow, you know, uh, trucking safety is a huge thing for us. Um, and we really spend millions and millions in it every year. And we're willing to buy things. So we're like, yeah, let's let's get into this. Let's hire someone who's you know expert at sales to trucking, and and, let, and let's do this. Um, so we we did legal for the for about two or three years, um, selling specifically only to trucking. But what happened was ultimately we couldn't land any deals. Um, we couldn't land. We could do like little pilot programs where a company would, would buy like fifty, hundred units and try to sell. Um, and, and, you know, we could start to them and they would do, do like little test runs. But what we couldn't do was land that 100,000 unit deal with UPS. Um, and looking back, I can kind of understand why. We're a little startup. A huge company like that doesn't really want to place their bets on a tiny little startup that might not exist in a few years. Um, and also, we weren't. Our technology just wasn't really there yet because drowsiness is actually pretty hard to track. It's not like temperature, for example, which is anyone could measure temperature in different ways and you probably get similar numbers or, or things like length and dimensions and weight, there's standards to it. But drowsiness, if I say you're drowsy and you say you're not, then who do we trust, right? It's, it's very subjective. Um, so we had a lot of trouble sort of trying to quantitate, um, quantitatively measure uh, drowsiness, but it was just really, really hard to measure. Um, so we raised, when we did Vigo, we raised about 700K. We, we, we had all these big deals with like UPS and stuff. Um, we were working with them. On the, on the outside, it looked like we were doing great. And we were, you know, working with all these people. And, and um, drowsiness detection is not a very commonly common thing that you hear of. Uh, but when you talk about it, people are like, oh yeah, that you know makes total sense and there's definitely need for it. Um, so everyone was excited about us, but no one was paying money. Um, so ultimately our team, we went to about seven people and then we cut it down back to three. Um, and then we ran out of cash. We only had $30,000 left in the bank at the time. Um, this was 2016. And my co-founder was like, okay, Jason, like we've been doing this for a couple of years. Let's do something different. Um, I'm like, no, we, we can't. Like $30,000, I'm sure we'll make it. This will last us two months. Maybe we'll get there and, 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 and then there'll be a breakthrough or maybe we'll die. Uh, but either way, I want to spend this $30,000 and, and just really try hard. Yeah, um, that's like every entrepreneur. And you sometimes become blinded and fall in love with your solution rather exactly. than being able to pivot and adapt to the market. Exactly. I mean, it was my baby. I was working during senior design. It was my idea. Um, and so it's really hard to 
when someone tells you like your baby is, you know, you should throw your baby away. I'm like, no way. Like your no baby way. is ugly. This is not working. <laughs> yeah. But then, um, what I do think was important though, was I really trusted my co-founder because we've been working together for multiple years, even before this kind of company. Um, I really trusted her. Um, and so when, when she said that, um, you know, we should do something different. I was, I still took what she said to heart. And I said, okay, give me three months. I'll try to raise funding. Let's try to see what happens. Um, if not, then, then okay, I'll pivot. So three months later was when we were left with 30,000 and uh, uh, I still couldn't raise any funding and we still couldn't make any sales. And so I'm like, all right, what's your idea? And she says like, let's throw away the drowsiness detection. I'm like, no way, how could we do that? Like if we're doing that, we put in hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've been doing that for like five years. How can we throw away our core technology? She's like, let's throw away that drowsiness detection, but keep everything else we have. Um, the smart glasses, the, the tracking, the voice control, all that kind of thing. Um, we had ideas where we could, you could be driving and order, order coffee at your next truck stop, things like that. She says like, let's you know, keep all those uh, voice recognition, all that in there, but throw away the drowsiness detection. And now you have something that anyone could use, not just drivers, but anyone. And, you know, I wasn't really trusting her idea and there was nothing on the market at the time uh, that was anything close to that. There were all these smart classes attempts where you could, you know, there was Google Glass where you could watch, watch a video. Um, there were, uh, what other products were there? There was Snapchat, which did their spectacles where you could like make videos and stuff. Um, but no one had really tried what we were doing, which is throwing away all these cameras and screens and just doing something simple. Um, but we had 30,000, we had no choice. And then this was 2016. This was about uh, six, a couple of weeks before the elections. And we knew that if we had to launch something, we only had six weeks to do it because if we, if we had uh, spent longer, then everyone would be sort of watching the elections and no one's sort of writing or reading about tech. So we had six weeks, $30,000 to build something completely new. And that was when I knew, okay, I need to fly from San Francisco back to Shenzhen where things are cheap, they're fast, and I know where everything is. I can get 3D printing same day or next day versus in San Francisco, it takes you know, a couple of days. Um, I can buy components just at the electronics market. Whereas in the US, I have to order something on DigiKey and it takes about a week to arrive. Um, so we flew back to China, um, went back to our hardware accelerator and we sort of spent six weeks there building a new product. And then we launched on Kickstarter um, with no idea what would happen. But first day we, we smashed through our goal of $50,000. And then every day we had a constant um, sales, which ultimately ended up in $2 million sales uh, within 45 days. Unbelievable. Unbe I mean, what an amazing story. And isn't it amazing how when you set a deadline, you're saying, I, I like even before the six week deadline, when you gave yourself that three month deadline, you said to your co-founder, hey, give me three months and then I'll make the decision. We'll revisit this conversation. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs and even those maybe listening that don't give themselves that deadline to make that hard decision. So they end up just keep living, you know, week to week or day by day. And then a year goes by, two years goes by, goes by and they're like, oh, shoot. 
what did we just do? Where did we spend our time? And should we have pivoted earlier? I like that you had enough insight to say, okay, I trust my co-founder enough that I'm willing to test it out. Let's test her hypothesis. But before we do, give me three months. Three months, I can't do it. We'll revisit the conversation. You did that. And then you you trusted her enough to say, all right, we have to do this in six weeks, $30,000. You have a very finite deadline. You have a quantifiable, measurable metric you have to achieve within a certain amount of time. And you did it. And you not only did it, you crushed it. So then what happened? Well, I mean, you know, we, we got $2 million at the bank and we're like, wow, like last time it was, you know, we we're running low on like about three digits soon. And now it's suddenly like seven digits. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty cool. Um, we had all this media coverage. That was also when Forbes reached out to us and, and, and uh, they wrote about us and then they also um, put us on the list. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I think that was when we really realizing, wow, we can do something that's sort of revolutionary. We can sort of invent something from scratch and have people really recognize the idea. Um, you know, it was the second time that we did have an idea that was recognized, but um, the first time being Beagle, um, second time being View, but uh, this was the first time when this idea actually also made money. Um, so that was when... We, we raised the funding, we started hiring people, we started uh, spending some time in Shenzhen doing manufacturing um, while also keeping our backers happy and keeping them in, in the loop. Um, ultimately, production was delayed by about a year or two, um, but people were happy because we kept them informed about the updates. Uh, we showed them everything about development um, and uh, we try to you know, keep them updated so that they can see the whole process to see what it takes to really build hardware because people say hardware is hard. It really is super tough. Like when you're doing something like software, um, there's all this like agile and, and you know, rapid prototyping and, and you try to uh, create a prototype in a couple of weeks. With hardware, that's impossible. Like with hardware, it, it takes like a month to make a PCB. It takes another couple of weeks to, to, to buy those components and then put them on. Then you test them, it doesn't work. You, do it another time, that's a whole new iteration. Um, so hardware takes a long time, um, but we inform our backers the, the whole time. And I think that communication is really, really important. Yeah, people um, don't care how long it takes, as long as you're letting them know why is it taking so long and showing them the journey along the way. I'm curious, and I'm sure the listeners are too, what was the main difference between the first Kickstarter campaign and the second Kickstarter campaign? Because I'm sure you learned a lot and maybe have even changed or tweaked a few things? What, what did you learn? What, are, what would be your advice for someone that maybe is going through a similar process? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of uh, different factors that sort of led to the Kickstarter campaign working out. Um, one thing, for example, is you want to get feedback. So you know what you're building and so do your friends. So when you ask your friends, like, does this website make sense? Does this Kickstarter page, does this explanation make sense? most likely they, they already know what you're doing and so it kind of makes sense to them. But what you don't know is does it make sense to the layman, to someone who happens to come upon, upon your website. So what I did was I went to coffee stores um, where I'd, you know, I'd stop people and be like, hey, do you have a minute? Like, can you take a look at this website? Can you spend two minutes and look at this video and see is this interesting? Does this make sense? Do you know what this product does? Um, so, so I went to these coffee shops and just really 
talk to people um, who tend to have time if they're hanging out in coffee shops. Um, and they would give me great feedback about like, I have no idea, like, what does an accelerometer mean? What does a gyroscope mean? Like, can you sort of, you know, not mention these technical terms and just tell me what does this do for me? Remove um, the jargon, remove the buzzwords, just explain to the layman, what does this do and how does it do it? Exactly. So that was one big thing. Um, the other thing I think was also getting media um, to sort of, uh, to really write about us. Um, so we've been on not just Forbes, but also CNN, NBC, uh, CNBC, uh, uh, basically all the media that you can, you can you know, think of, TechCrunch, Wall Street Journal, everyone's written about us. Um, and with the first version, uh, with the first Kickstarter, we didn't really, uh, the media path sort of came as an afterthought. We launched it and then we're like, oh shit, we should sort of reach out to media and have them write about us. But they were like, oh, this product's already on the market. People have seen it. It's not really news anymore. Um, but when we did view, uh, we reached out to these reporters way beforehand, before we even had the product prototype. And we said, like, we're launching something new. Um, we'll let you see it. We'll come to you, to your office in New York or San Francisco, and let you see it. But you're not allowed to write about it until we launch. Um, and they're like, OK, love to test it out. And so we went to visit these reporters. And I think that was also really important because if you send them a product, if you say like, oh, here's some pictures or a video about a product, they're not really engaging with the product. They, they don't really have a big incentive to learn more about it, to write about it. They're busy people. But when you meet them, you have them try it, try it and you have them put this on and they're like, oh, wow, like I'm hearing things through that. Like that's when people are amazed and that's when they're, uh, more likely to write positive things about you. They're more enthralled so, and you created an experience for them. So it's not exactly. only go to the media beforehand to build up the anticipation, but then also go to them in person, create an experience that's engaging, fun, and that way they get more enthralled and incentivized. They have more proclivity to, to release a positive article. Exactly, especially I think it's more important for a hardware product because you can't really, you know, you, you, like you can look at pictures, but you don't know how it feels, how it sounds, um, what it's like to use it. So, you know, things like clothing, food, electronics, all these things, you kind of have need to have people to try it. Um, there's, you know, even a game, you would want a reporter to, to play with it first, right? Rather than just tell them, oh, we have a game coming out. So I think that's really important. Um, and then the other thing we also did was, um, we ran a lot of Facebook ads, Instagram ads, really targeting people, um, very specifically people who wore glasses, um, which is you know, an option that you can target on Facebook. And so that worked out really well for us because uh, basically people who wear glasses always buy glasses. And with what we have, you can also um, get insurance, like reimbursement, uh, depending on the insurance policy. Um, so even though we sell it for like $2.99 uh, USD, a lot of people can buy it for cheaper because their insurance covers part of it. And so really targeting people who wear glasses and telling them there's something new that you can try out was really powerful. Those are great, three great tips. And I know uh, those that are thinking about doing the Kickstarter campaign now have a better, they're more well-equipped to do so successfully. Um, and who better to listen to than someone that is the all-time uh, campaign for eyewear. So congratulations on that. Huge success. 
right, right. we're going to transition now into something I like to call the under 30 seconds round, where I'm going to fire off some questions, answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Ready? All right. What is the book you've gifted more often than any other book and why? A short History of Everything or a Brief History of Everything. Um, basically, it's a book that sort of tells you everything well, in very short, concise um, paragraphs and chapters, tells you everything about how the world came to be, how, you know, the touches on anthropology, a bit, a bit of history about the, how the world formed, um, how sort of religion came to be. Um, and I think that was, to me, that was a book that really helped me learn a lot, a lot of things um, beyond what I was uh, experience then was just like mechanical engineering, business and stuff. Um, I think it really sort of helped me understand, oh, okay, so this is how the world works, how things form, why there are countries and governments and, and, and all that. Um, so, so I really liked that book um, because it gave me a perspective and now sort of, you know, on the personal side, I'm thinking, oh, maybe in the future I want to like do a PhD in anthropology or something. There's something totally different from what my background has been in. Because I don't want to just always be sort of an entrepreneur, an expert at Kickstarter or an expert at building hardware. I want to, want to really learn different things and hopefully that can help me have a better perspective of like what, what to be building that can really help people. A renaissance, man. It, it reminds me of the book Sapiens by uh, Yuval Harari. That one, yeah, that, that's also one of the top on my list. Um, Sapiens and Homo Deus, I, I really liked um, both, uh, you know, Sapiens and, and the sequel. The second version, um, yeah. Exactly, yeah, because it really helps you think about the past and think about the future and really sort of plan for the future. Because I think as entrepreneurs, you always have to be thinking ahead, like what are people doing? What are their basic needs? How do we fulfill those needs? Um, and then how will we be fulfilling those needs in the future as technology changes and everything? So I think that was really important. Um, one big ins inspiration I had from travel was when I was visiting Egypt and they had like all these sort of paintings in the pyramids and in the temples of people just eating and drinking and hunting and praying. And I was like, isn't that just Instagram? Like, isn't that just Instagram <laughs> a thousand years ago? And so you can really, you know, you then realize, okay, so people have been jotting down their lives and like, you know, taking note of what life is like and trying to portray their life for thousands of years. Instagram right now is just simply a new tech form of what people have been painting 5,000 years ago. And just yeah, magnifying what we already had. There's a lot of human innate features that we've continued for many, many years and we haven't exactly. changed much. That's why I think as entrepreneurs, it's important to really think in that perspective about how things used to work and how things are expected to work in the future. Um, because a lot of these things are common as humans. And, and the, yeah, I think it also adds empathy to people's minds, like being empathetic with human beings and realizing we're not that different from where we used to be. We're just really smart animals that happen to retain information because we wrote it down and pass it on to the next generation. But we're pretty uh, primal if you boil us down to our, our real biological uh, needs and, and makeup. Exactly. And we won't put people on a pedestal as much to be perfect and, and realize how uh, simple we really are. Um, 
What's one of the best investments and one of the worst investments you've ever made and why? Um, this may be a little bit too early to tell, but um, in, in terms of like best investment was uh, I re recently when the coronavirus came and then all the stocks dropped, I bought a lot of airline stocks um, and they have since like doubled or tripled um, since then. So, you know, it, it may still be a little early and maybe those sort of drop sharply. But the reason why I think, um, you know, investing in, in like these stocks really worked out for me was uh, um, because in China, so I, I think I'm lucky enough to spend half my time in China and half my time in the US. And so it's like very good perspective. Um, the coronavirus hit China much earlier. And uh, right now um, in China, life has just fully recovered. It's actually recovered since uh, March when you could go out to eat in restaurants, we were back to work, everything was totally fine. Um, and air travel was like huge. People were going everywhere, still traveling, um, visiting friends, going out for business trips, whereas the US is still sort of a couple months behind and lagging. But I think it'll catch up soon and be where China is. So I think in terms of, um, you know, if, if investment is about sort of financial investment, I think, um, uh, to me, being able to see what happens in China and then seeing how that replicates in the U.S. is just really valuable and, and it's worked out pretty well for me. That's awesome. And what about the worst investment? Uh, well, also in terms of financial investment, I think, is uh, back in college when I was new to stocks, I would buy just, I don't know, all these stocks that analysts would I'd read analyst reports and they'd talk about, okay, this stock is doing really well, and then I would buy them um, without really understanding the business and what they did. Um, and then I lost a lot of money back then during college, which is why I haven't touched stocks all these years until recently. Um, and you know, I, I think it's important to really only invest in things that you are really, really sure about. Like I haven't put too much in cryptocurrency um, because to me, you know, how does the blockchain work? Why is this valuable? There's still a lot of things that I, I still um, need to have answers for before I would really, you know, trust to put a lot of money in it. But I think what I learned back in college was I was just doing what other people were saying. Um, and it turns out that without really understanding those companies and their fundamentals, it doesn't work too well. Um, recently, yes. there were some Chinese stocks, um, 58.com, which is like an online platform, and also Luckin Coffee, which a lot of people say is like the Starbucks of China. Um, like I, I know a lot of people in the U S lost money on that. Um, and these are stocks that I totally wouldn't have bought because when you're living in China, you know, that these, these companies aren't doing too well and they're definitely taking numbers. Um, so it came to us as no surprise in China when it did turn out that they were taking numbers, but to a lot of people in the U S they were like, I'm going to invest in the Starbucks of China because they open more stores than Starbucks. And then, um, the fraudulent scam comes up. And then they're totally hit by that. But I think really understanding um, the industry or, or whatever you're putting time or money into is really important. That's great advice. What's the most impactful thing you do in your morning routine and the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine? I think morning, well, one thing I, I, I always try to, uh, I've been doing for like over 10 years, um, is to try to help someone every day. Um, so, you know, just 
it could be as simple as I don't know. Some sometimes even maybe getting the door for someone. Like sometimes I have to make that count. Um, but sometimes it's you know helping someone move their stuff or helping all, all kinds of things. But every day I try to help someone. Um, kind of try to make that a habit. So that's something that sort of in the morning I sort of remind myself. Okay, who do I help yesterday, and you know what what am I going to be doing today? Um, that I think has has been really useful because it. You know, to me, it's like every day I feel I've been doing something and helping someone and making something better for someone. Um, evening routine-wise, I think um, one thing that I do is I always try to ask myself, do I have any regrets for that day? And if so, what do I do to no longer make it a regret? Because I think um, what led me to this was I had a couple. Friends from college that passed away,、um, and you know these were people who were eighteen, nineteen, or in the early twenties, and they just suddenly passed away、um, due to illnesses, due to accidents, due to all kinds of things. And that's when I realized that, well, like life, you know, it, it's really short. Like it could just end tomorrow, and you'd have no idea today.、Um, and so I realized that I have to. You know, if I love someone, I have to tell them. If I want to do something, I have to do it.、Um, so I always ask myself, like, am I doing something? You know, that that if today was the last day of my life, would I still be doing these things? And if the answer is yes, then great. If the answer is no, then okay, tomorrow I should be doing that、mm-hmm. um, in case the day after tomorrow is my last day.、Um, great way to look at life. Exactly, and and so when I do my startup,、um, that's a question I often ask myself because it's been seven years doing the same company,、um, and a lot of people are like, "How do you even do that and stay in the same company and do the same thing for seven years?"、Um, and to me, it's like, is there anything else I would want to do more than this? No, I you know I still want to do this because I love it,、um, and, that, and so that's why I continue doing it. But if one day I no longer do it. Then it's probably because I ask myself, "Is there something else I want to do?" And I have I have something else I want to do. Then maybe I would just go and do that. Maybe that's space exploration. <laughs> we'll see. Well, Pretend you best to be my next next startup because I think I need to still sell two more companies before I can have the money <laughs> to to do any space exploration. Touche. Well, I think after you read Elon's book, you'll you might have a different opinion.、Um, <laughs> Pretend you won the Peter Thiel Fellowship and you were going to get money to start a business instead of go to college. What's the very first thing you do to start your new business? You know, I, I know that the fellowship is for a lot of you know much much younger people, and so、um, as someone who's you know I,、uh, like I've I've had the I've made the mistake of being a college student and building something that was I thought perfect for college students and. Actually, there was a real-world application that was way beyond college,、um, and I also quite often see that. Like, I had a friend last year I met who、um, was doing a code check robot where you can do code checks, and he was saying like, "This is a perfect product that we're gonna sell to frats and sororities, where like, you know, when you go into a frat, you need to take out your code, and and so we'll do a code check so that when people are drunk, they're not gonna mess up their codes." And I'm, I'm like, okay, that's great, and you know, frats and sororities probably need it, but there's a, there are a lot of markets out there that need this much more, like convention centers, hotels, big event venues, things like that,、um, where they're much more willing to pay money for for a machine or robot to do that.、Um, so I think you know, for someone who who does get the the tier fellowship and before they do anything, 
is to really, if you have an idea, you know, talk to people who are much older than you, much more experienced than you, to see what they think about those ideas. Um, if you're lacking people to work with you, you know, try to try to find people who maybe have experience that's different from you, or maybe people who are even older and have different perspectives. Because I think really, you know, bridging that together is important, rather than a whole team of uh, 19, 18 year olds, all, you know, with limited experience trying to build something. I always recommend trying to start in a startup, working in a startup first before you create your own startup. Last question, what's something you never knew you needed? So the thing that um, is, I think, really most important to me is the fact that I have a great co-founder. Like, I've always thought that you could just build a business on your own. Um, we've mentioned Elon Musk multiple times. Like, you know, if, if, even though he's had co-founders, uh, he's sort of the driving force behind everything, right? Um, and so, you know, when you, when you look at a lot of people's stories, not everyone has a co-founder. Um, a lot of people are, you know, they, they have that energy and, and drive and spirit to do things themselves. But I think that if I didn't have a co-founder, I probably would have failed like six years ago um, in my first year because, you know, we, you always have limited life experience and experience in a lot of things. Um, and that's, and you need people to complement what you're good at um, and make up for what you're not good at. So I think for me, I'm good at, you know, building technology, coming up with ideas, but how do I manage a team? How do I, you know, market a product? How do I design something cool? That's where my co-founder comes in. Um, her name's Tian Tian. She also made it on the Forbes list. Um, I think, you know, we work really well together and our skills really complement each other. We don't agree on most things. And that's what I really love about how we work together because we don't agree with each other, but then we can also tell each other why we don't agree share our different perspectives and then persuade the other. Um, and I think that's really, really important versus, I don't know, finding someone who always agrees with you, even if you're wrong, then that's going to lead to failure. Yeah. It just validates your confirmation bias. Exactly. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being here today. Before you go, what's the next big goal, milestone or bucket list item you want to achieve? Um, well, company-wise, we're going to be uh, launching new products soon. Um, so this is uh, the first version of Vue. We're going to build sleeker, lighter versions of Vue. Um, and I think to us, what we, re you know, to, to my, my goal is to, I hope that everyone in the world ultimately is wearing a pair of Vue because while well, everyone who wears glasses, which is about 60-70% of the world, um, I hope everyone is going to be wearing Vue because I think there's a lot of innovation that can be built in this space. Um, no one has really cracked it yet, and I think we're in a position to do that. So that would be my goal, is to really have everyone own a pair. Just like how, I don't know, I think it was like in the 1950s when was it IBM or some, someone said that they were hoping everyone in the world would have a, a computer, um, and it didn't seem possible at the time. But then now everyone does have a computer. I think it's totally possible that in the future, everyone's going to have a pair of smart glasses that's going to do a lot more things than them, uh, for them. Well, hopefully after listening to this podcast, a lot more people will have a pair of view glasses. Jason and his team were nice enough to give you in the audience a discount um, by using coupon code PhilsPodcast and you get an extra $30 off at viewglasses.com. And the view is spelled V-U-E. 
glasses.com. Um, Jason, thanks for your generosity. Where do listeners go to connect with you directly? Um, well, they can, hmm, good question. Probably LinkedIn, probably on, on uh, they can reach out to me on my website, uh, jason at viewglasses.com. Um, if they want to meet in person, I'm all over the world. I'm in Hong Kong right now under quarantine. Um, but I do often find myself in Shenzhen and San Francisco most of the time. Right. Please go connect with Jason. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here today. This is Jason Gui with View Glasses, who beat Google Glass and made smart glasses you actually want to wear. We learned so much today. We, uh, we learned how to build a proper Kickstarter campaign. We learned how to go and pivot from a previous company to your new company. Jason, a lot of actionable tips today. Thank you so much for being here today. And it was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank I you, hope Bill. this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Have an amazing day. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Who do you think would benefit from hearing it? You can make an impact on their life by sharing it now. Before you go, I encourage you to tell us your favorite part of the episode in the review section. Now it's time to level up. Level up. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.